Welcome to QuackCast 40, Literature Update, Chiropractic and Ginkgo Biloba. I am sick of saying the intro. Go back to Podcast 1 if you want to hear it. This is Podcast 40. It's catch-up time. There are three papers out that are worth discussing. The first concerns chiropractic, the other two about Ginkgo Biloba. But first, some background. Causation is not so simple to determine as one would think. A mantra at SBM, Science-Based Medicine, is association is not causation. In much of the belief in the efficacy of a variety of quack nostrums, it occurs because improvement occurs after use of a nostrum. Therefore, improvement occurs because of use of a nostrum. This is why vaccines as a cause of autism are so compelling to some. Vaccines are given at the same time autism starts to manifest, and it would require more intellectual power than I have not to conclude, wrongly, that vaccines cause autism. Concluding causation from sequential events is how the human mind works, and reality, as we know and ignore, constantly conspires to fool us into making false causal connections. In infectious diseases, I see this error almost daily. The patient had a fever, the patient was given antibiotics, the fever went away. Therefore, antibiotics treated an infection. Well, maybe, maybe not. One of my personal mantras is antibiotics are not antipyretics. If you want to treat a fever, give Tylenol. If you want to treat an infection, give antibiotics. But you must be very careful before concluding that the fever went away because of the penicephalone. Now, I blog and podcast in large part to educate and entertain myself I am one of the lucky few whose voices provide positive reinforcement and why I am immune for criticism. The chorus of internal praise overwhelms any external critique. It is amazing how much I learn in the process of preparing for one of the entries in my multimedia medical empire. Available at Pusware.com. Areas of knowledge that I had no idea existed can be revealed for explanation. And it always seems that the more I learn, the less I know. I just watched the Twilight Zone Marathon this weekend. Imagine, if you will, the surprise and delight of an infectious disease doctor who discovers Hill's criteria of causation and its application to chiropractic subluxation. Now, in 1965, Austin Bradford Hill published The Environment and Disease, Association or Causation, Dr. Hill, an occupational physician, sought to answer the questions as follows, quote, How in the first place do we detect relationships between sickness, injury, and conditions of work? How do we determine what physical, chemical, and psychological hazards of occupation, and in particular those that are rare and not easily recognized? In other words, we see that event B is associated with an environmental feature A that, to take a specific example, Some form of respiratory illness is associated with a dust in the environment. In what circumstances can we pass from this observed association to a verdict of causation? Upon what basis should we proceed to do so? He then proceeds to list criteria. Dr. Hill refers to them as viewpoints that help in determining causation. 
Now, I like frameworks for thinking about processes. They provide a good foundation, a good starting point for considering problems. Becoming a doctor is, besides selling your soul to Big Pharma, internalizing frameworks. Early in training, you carry lists and papers around with you to remind you how to evaluate acidosis or the physiology of heart failure or suspected meningitis. After time and repetition, these lists are internalized and you can evaluate the problems without resorting to the lists. As an intern, one of the papers I carried around was the New England Journal of Medicine article on the physiology of the Swan-Gans catheter, and I would refer to it with each patient who had a swan. One day, I did not need to refer to the paper. I had internalized the information and tossed the paper into the trash. It was the days before hospital recycling. Now, frameworks are not the be-all and end-all, but do serve as a foundation upon which to build ideas. Part of being a specialist is to recognize when the framework does not apply. However, I have never had a formal framework for thinking about what constitutes causality in medicine. Hill's paper is worth reading in the original, if for no other reason, as an appreciation of a time when the medical literature was not dry as dust and devoid of humor and style. Current medical journal writing is often an excellent replacement for Ambien, even when you are fascinated by the topic. To call it the medical literature is to refer to the phone book as literature. And the viewpoints to consider in determining if association is due to causation are 1. Strength. How strong is the association between the cause and the effect? Hill uses the example of chimney sweeps, who died of scrotal cancer rates at 400 times that of the normal population. It killed Bert, or so I was led to believe, and explains, in part, why Mary Poppins never had children of her own. He points out that a strong association like scrotal cancer and chimney sweeps is good evidence in favor of causality from an environmental exposure. Although the increase in cancer rate does make one wonder just how they were cleaning those chimbleys. 2. Consistency. Almost every study should support the association for there to be causation. He uses the consistent association between smoking and cancer as an example. He also warns about the importance of a well-chosen control or placebo group, the inclusion of which often spells the death of alternative therapy efficacy. To quote Dr. Hill, Patients admitted to the hospital for operation for peptic ulcer are questioned about recent domestic anxieties or crises that may have precipitated the acute illness. As controls, patients admitted for operation for a simple hernia are similarly quizzed. But, as Hetty points out, the two groups may not be identical. If your wife ran off with the lodger last week, you still have to take your perforated ulcer to the hospital without delay. But with a hernia, you might stay at home while you mourn or celebrate the event. No number of exact repetitions will remove or necessarily reveal that fallacy, end quote. Yeah, they really used to write like that in the journals. The good old days. As QuackCast listeners are probably aware, one of the consistencies with alternative therapies is that increasing the quality of the study decreases the efficacy until the best studies show no effect. The voices in my head tell me to call it Crislip's Law, sort of like Hahnemann's Law, so-called, of homeopathy. You know, crap pulled out of your ass with no external validation. But I might get a med school named after me nonetheless. 3. Specificity. Effect A should only cause result B. 
However, human physiology has a limited response to physiologic insults, so it can be difficult to tease out which of the underlying exposures evaluated is associated with the disease or treatment. Lots of processes, for example, can cause a fever, not just infections. Treatments, as well, can have multiple effects, blurring the ability to credit a specific response. As Dr. Hill noted, quote, In short, if specificity exists, we may be able to draw conclusions without hesitation. If it is not, we are not thereby necessarily left sitting irresolutely on the fence, end quote. I really should read these in the English accent. As Dr. Harriet Hall has discussed over at Science-Based Medicine, many alternative medical paradigms completely lack specificity and are the one true cause or treatment of all diseases, be it subluxation, a liver fluke, or colonic toxin buildup. Fools all, infections are the one true cause of all disease. Number four, temporality, he says with a mouthful of marbles. The order should be exposure, disease, treatment, resolution. Cause should proceed effect. Five, biologic gradient, also known as dose response. A little exposure should result in a little effect. A large exposure should cause a larger effect. Certainly well known to anyone who drinks alcohol. And I suppose all homeopaths must be teetotalers. Now, I can imagine that there might be a chiropractor who might say your spine is partly unsubluxed as a result of half a spinal manipulation, so you are 50% better. Or an acupuncturist saying your chi is 30% unblocked because I use too few needles, so you should be 30% better. Most alternative therapies are apparently all or nothing and have no gradient of their effect. Rather than being all or nothing, they are all or all. Just curious... Those of you who have visited a chiropractor or an acupuncturist, has any practitioner ever told you at the end of the session that you are partly treated, so therefore you should only have a partial response? Six, plausibility. The effect must have biologic plausibility. I would take this slightly differently. Not only should it be biologically plausible, but it should not violate well-known laws of the universe. Hill points out, quote, but this is a feature I am convinced we cannot demand. What is biologically plausible depends upon the biologic knowledge of the day. End quote. True, but there is a difference between what is not yet known but possible and what is not known yet impossible. And if I sound any more like Donald Rumsfeld, I will be put in an institution. For example, helicobacter as a cause of gastric ulcers is odd but not impossible. It does not violate any known knowledge about bacteria or ulcers. However, meridians or water memory are both odd and impossible. The former violates known physiology, the latter known physics. I know there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in my philosophy, but you gotta prove it to me. Hill says, quote, In short, the association we observe may be one new to science or medicine, and we must not dismiss it too lightheartedly as just too odd. As Sherlock Holmes advised Dr. Watson, and I hope to see that movie today, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. End quote. A nice quote, but not necessarily the case. Sometimes what remains is, however improbable, nonsense. Which leads to seven. Coherence. Quote, on the other hand, the cause and effect interpretation of our data should not seriously conflict with generally known facts 
of the natural history and biology of the disease, end quote. B-I-N-G-O and bingo was his name-o. I have discussed in prior podcasts that those who call themselves holistic rarely are. And a good physician understands the disease from the microscopic to the entire world. I know cholera, for example, from the level of the toxin on the cellular receptors to worldwide changes in potable water that lead to the spread of the disease and much in between. There's a coherence of understanding of the disease. Understanding anatomy, physiology, or other bits of science, most alternative therapies have no coherence when placed in the context of the known universe. Homeopathy is, above all, totally incoherent. 8. Experiment Having bench and clinical studies to support the cause of a disease and the result of a treatment is always nice. Written in 1965, before the massive increase in biomedical research funding, experiments were not as vital in understanding disease and treatment as they are today. Unfortunately for most alternative medicine, experiments rarely support their theory or efficacy. Not that it ever matters to so-called alternative practitioners. I think about how much my practice has changed over the last 25 years, adding, subtracting, and modifying what I do as the data comes in. Consider that there are 44,000 articles in PubMed in infectious diseases that were published last year. I wonder how much chiropractic, 233 articles in 2009, or acupuncture, 1,000 articles in 2009, naturopathy, 19 articles in 2009, or homeopathy, 162 articles in 2009, changed as a result of published studies. I mean, it can't be all that hard to keep up and so change your practice accordingly. Occasionally it is noted that large swaths of real medicine is unsupported by good studies. Yeah, maybe. But with over 2 million PubMed citations, at least those of us in the medical industrial complex are trying, and as a result, changing practice as a result of science. Number nine, analogy. If one virus, for example, can cause disease, then it is reasonable to suggest that a second virus could be responsible for a similar disease. Analogy and a metaphor are often the preferred methods for understanding alternative therapies, but then with little comparison to objective reality. Now, Hill states clearly that these are just guidelines not to be followed blindly. Quote, what I do not believe, and this has been suggested, that we can usefully lay down some hard and fast rules of evidence that must be obeyed before we can accept cause and effect. None of my nine viewpoints can bring indisputable evidence for or against the cause and effect hypothesis, and none can be required as a sine qua non. What they can do, with greater or less strength, is to help us make up our minds on the fundamental question, is there any other way of explaining the set of facts before us or is any other answer equally or more likely than cause and effect? End quote. It's the importance of considering all the data, the preponderance of information, in deciding cause and effect. Hill is also not enthusiastic about statistics and the dreaded p-value. Long quote coming up. Quote, No formal tests of significance can answer these questions. Such tests can and should remind us of the effects that the play of chance can create, and they will instruct us in the likely magnitude of these effects. Beyond that, they contribute nothing to the proof of our hypothesis. 
Between the two world wars, there was a strong case for emphasizing to the clinician and other research workers the importance of not overlooking the effects of the play of chance upon their data. Perhaps too often, generalities were based upon two men and a laboratory dog, while the treatment of choice was deducted from a difference between two bedfuls of patients and might easily have no true meaning. It was therefore a useful corrective for statisticians to stress and to teach the needs for tests of significance merely to serve as guides to caution before drawing a conclusion, before inflating the particular to the general. Yet there are innumerable situations in which tests of significance are totally unnecessary because the difference is grotesquely obvious, because it is negligible, or because, whether it can be formally significant or not, it is too small to be of any practical importance. He just defined alternative medicine. What is worse, the glitter of the tea table diverts attention from the inadequacies of the fair. Unquote. They really wrote good back in the old days, didn't they? Statistically significant nonsense is still nonsense. The author puts into perspective the ongoing problem of the meta-analysis discussed on one of my earlier podcasts. I always say that meta-analysis is good for a general understanding of an intervention, but rarely provides definitive answers. When meta-analyses are compared to subsequent randomized controlled trials, the meta-analysis gets it wrong 35% of the time. As a result, I think meta-analyses are great if they support your prior beliefs and can be safely ignored if they contradict them. That is the problem with the meta-analysis. They are good at the mathematics statistics of multiple studies, but fail to take into consideration the other viewpoints as enumerated by Dr. Hill. Far be it from me to suggest that the Cochrane reviews may be wanting, as they are often considered the be-all and end-all of analyses, but their reviews in the few areas I know a little about always leave me feeling unsatisfied. Dr. Hill ends the discussion on the importance of then using the information when association merges into causation and to consider at what point we need to act on the information. We have to act on our information, even if it always is incomplete. If the data suggests benefit, use it. If the data suggests this is worthless, stop it. Quote, All scientific work is incomplete, whether it be observational or experimental. All scientific work is liable to be upset or modified by advancing knowledge. That does not confer upon us a freedom to ignore the knowledge we already have or to postpone the action when it appears to demand at a given time. End quote. It would seem that scientific medicine is the antithesis of alternative medicine. He continues, Who knows, asked Robert Browning, but that the world may end tonight. True, but on available evidence, most of us make ready to commute on the 8.30 the next day. End quote. 8.30. Now that was a more leisurely era. So what do we have? Strength, consistency, specificity, temporality, dose response, experimental evidence, biologic plausibility, coherence, and analogy. Some would toss a little bit of statistics in there as well. But multiple approaches to consider if association is due to causality. It is a nice framework from which to consider causes of disease and effects of therapy, especially when there are no definitive studies. Recently, Hill's criteria were applied to chiropractic subluxation. 
and subluxation, calcipres, was found wanting. In chiropractic theory, spinal subluxation is considered to be the cause of nearly all disease. As most of you are aware, subluxation was made up by D.D. Palmer in, quote, the Association of Chiropractic College's paradigm statement suggests that chiropractic is concerned with the preservation and restoration of health and focuses particular attention on the subluxation. It also defines a subluxation as a complex of functional and or structural and or pathological articular changes that compromise neurointegrity and may influence organ system function and general health, end quote. I like that, may. They are so certain. Quote, if the chiropractic profession is to embrace the subluxation as a defining factor of health, along with claiming that intervention to correct this lesion is needed for the health of the human body, then there exists an obligation to examine the current status of subluxation against epidemiologic methods and criteria, end quote. Fixing subluxation is the basis of the practice of chiropractic. If there is no subluxation, the raison d'etre of chiropractic disappears with a pop, or perhaps the crack of a spine. Yeah, 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 I know. Chiropractors are a diverse bunch, and they do physical therapy and other mechanical modalities as part of their practice. Fine. That's not the topic. The topic is subluxation and its existence. So when Timothy A. Mertz et al. searched the literature, looking for support for the most fundamental practice of chiropractic and came up with a bupkis. Well, imagine if the literature searched for germs as a cause for infection or atherosclerosis as a cause of heart attack found nothing. I mean zip, nil, nadla, ye old diddly squat. If germs were found to be non-existent or cardiology, it was discovered that there was no atherosclerosis, I would hope they would disappear as a subspecialty. If there's no basis for the practice, it should be abandoned, right? So what is the support for subluxation using Hill's ever-so-helpful viewpoints? I will summarize with a quote from the article. Quote, Specifically, there were no studies that found subluxation to have a relative risk or odds ratio. No studies that found that demonstrated the subluxation to be consistently found in different people of gender or race, location, or even circumstances. Subluxation was not found to be specifically linked to any one disease complex. Temporal sequence studies were not noted. Subluxation was not noted in any studies related to dose response. Animal-based studies that were used to satisfy the experimental evidence were limited. There were no studies that offered a biologic plausibility that would isolate subluxation as a causal factor in disease. There were no studies linking the subluxation as a coherent construct and supported by generally known facts about the natural history or biology of any disease. There were no studies found that suggested that subluxation is a causal agent similar to or factually demonstrated causal agents, end quote. No, none, nothing, not a little or a skosh or a wee bit or a dribble or a gobbit of data. They found nothing. As the conclusion states, quote, there is a significant lack of evidence 
in the literature to fulfill Hill's criteria of causation as regards chiropractic subluxation. No supportive evidence is found for the chiropractic subluxation being associated with any disease process or of creating suboptimal health conditions requiring intervention. Regardless of popular appeal, this leaves the subluxation construct in the realm of unsupported speculation. The lack of supportive evidence suggests that subluxation construct has no valid clinical applicability, end quote. So, why continue with chiropractic, at least based on the treatment of subluxation? Got me. And pay for it with tax dollars or insurance premiums? If chiropractic is based entirely on nothing substantial, then nothing is what should be reasonably paid. One wonders about other alternative therapies, homeopathy, acupuncture, energy therapies, etc. Even if a Cochrane review were to suggest marginal statistical benefit, when Hill's viewpoints are considered, I doubt any would hold up. So much for chiropractic subluxation. We move from the imaginary to ginkgo biloba. I discussed ginkgo in a podcast 13 in 2007. Man, that was a long time ago. Ginkgo is used primarily to aid memory, and I'm going to avoid any forgetfulness jokes. So go elsewhere if you just have to have one of those bon mots. Sorry, but even I will not stoop that low. As best as I can discover, the use of ginkgo for memory became popular for no good reason except that somebody somewhere at one time said it was useful for that indication, i.e., like much of alt-med, it was pulled out of someone's butt. I cannot find the origin of the use of ginkgo leaves for memory and Alzheimer's, and most of the interwebs suggest that the Chinese used the seeds, not the leaves, to treat a hodgepodge of diseases. Although not proven to be effective, ginkgo has been used for other non-physiologically related diseases like asthma, tinnitus, and altitude sickness, amongst others. Many other diseases are allegedly treated by ginkgo, depending on which interweb site you visit. Like all ancient botany-based nostrums, I guess if you throw enough poo at the wall, some of it might stick. Yeah, poo. And butt. I'm trying to keep my iTunes rating from being explicit. In the United States, memory has been Ginkgo's real raison de quackery, and since the 2007 podcast, there have been two excellent clinical trials looking at the effects of Ginkgo upon brain function. The first was Ginkgo biloba for the prevention of dementia, a randomized controlled trial published in JAMA in 2008 and paid for with our tax dollars, thanks to the National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine and the National Institute of Aging of the National Institutes of Health. In this study, they had 2,587 patients who were older than 75 years of age who had normal cognition and 482 elderly patients with mild cognitive impairment. They were then randomized to receive either placebo or 120 milligrams of ginkgo twice a day, and they were followed every six months with an impressive battery of neuropsychological tests. The form of ginkgo used was an extract of the leaves, which is standardized in Europe. Quote, the formulation EGB761, sounds very impressive, is an extract standardized in its major constituents, approximately 24%, ginkgo-specific, 
flavone glycosides and 6% terpene lactones. Mmm, terpene lactones. The result of this study, 3.3 per 100 patient years developed dementia on ginkgo, while 2.9 per 100 developed dementia on placebo. Wait, what? The placebo group did better? Huh? With made-up therapy, they induced dementia at higher rates than placebo? Say it ain't so, Joe. All patients, not just normal patients, but those with mild cognitive dysfunction, and looking at all the patients with dementia, and those with Alzheimer's without vascular dementia, and those with Alzheimer's with vascular dementia, and all Alzheimer's patients, the ginkgo groups did worse. Looking at the graph of cumulative dementia rates, it sure looks like ginkgo accelerated the rates of developing dementia. But wait, the p-values were not significant in all groups. Whew, man, saved by the p. Which range, depending on which subgroup was evaluated, from 0.11, which is getting close to significance, to 0.89. As the study says, quote, The higher rate of Alzheimer's dementia in individuals with pre-existing cerebral vascular disease and assigned to ginkgo biloba is puzzling and should be viewed with caution given the lack of evidence from published basic science research supporting a potential mechanism for ginkgo biloba increasing Alzheimer's dementia risks in individuals with cerebral vascular disease. It should be remembered that the whole premise for the study in the first place should be viewed with caution given the lack of evidence from published basic science research supporting any potential mechanism for ginkgo biloba. Yeah, Given the fact that the use of ginkgo for dementia was mostly made up, why couldn't it be worse? While I can think of no plausible reason why ginkgo could make dementia onset more rapid, who really knows what might be the effects of ginkgo products? Researchers have focused on the antioxidant effects, but perhaps there are other effects from the products found in ginkgo, or not. But when I compare the background for the development of ginkgo with what happens for antibiotic development, I get the conniption fits. And as I always say, if the conniption fits, wear it. But as one learns from Pomona Sprout, herbs can be tricky. In a subgroup of only 24 patients, 17 placebo and 7 ginkgo, with only vascular dementia, they did have a delay in their dementia but the small numbers make the effect interesting but questionable. Quote, Similarly, the very small number of purely vascular dementia cases identified in the study and the lack of the incidence of myocardial infarction of stroke make any conclusion about the relationship between ginkgo biloba and prevention of vascular dementia imprudent. Also, although no firm conclusion can be drawn from the higher number of hemorrhagic strokes in the ginkgo biloba group, the findings should be explored in further studies. Oh yeah, and the ginkgo group had more hemorrhagic strokes. Although the P was 0.12, it's getting perilously close to significant. Interesting in that one of the effects of ginkgo may be to alter platelet function. There were eight hemorrhagic bleeds in the placebo group, 16 in the ginkgo group, twice the placebo. 
For hoots and giggles, I looked at the New England Journal article on Dodrecogen Alpha, also known as Activated Protein C, brand name Zygris, in an article that looked at its use in low-risk sepsis patients. There were eight central nervous system bleeds in the placebo group and 10 in the treatment group, with a P of about 0.7. There were 43 total bleeding events in the placebo group and 82 in the treatment group, a P of 0.01. Double the rates of bleeds in the Zygris study, and they therefore concluded that the drug doesn't work as there's an increase in complication. So don't use Zygris for low sepsis. They had double the rates of CNS bleeding ginkgo. The drug doesn't work, and there is a hint of an increased bleed rate, and they do not conclude that you should not use it, but rather just that the drug doesn't work. I know, I know, I know. Apples and oranges. My only observation is that you have to read these articles carefully and make sure you apply your own spin, not that of the authors. Sometimes when you read the conclusions of these papers, you think, I do not think that means what you think it means. So in the elderly over age 75, quote, ginkgo biloba at 120 milligrams twice a day was not effective in reducing either the overall incidence rate of dementia in elderly individuals with normal cognition or those with moderate cognitive insufficiency, end quote. And if I were 75, the data would make me nervous to take it. With real drugs, there is a post-approval follow-up that can find very rare complications. Many a drug that looked safe in trials of a few thousand patients have effects that become evident only when they were given to millions, and they were withdrawn from the market. Supplements do not have this oversight. But given the data, you have to wonder if a trial size of 25 million rather than 2,500, would these effects be more pronounced or go away? I doubt we will ever know. Let's fast forward to 2009. The same group of patients was reassessed. Rather than looking for developing dementia, they look for the effect of ginkgo in preventing general cognitive decline. These were again published in JAMA at the end of December 2009 in an article entitled Ginkgo Biloba for Preventing Cognitive Decline in Older Adults, a randomized trial. So they thought maybe what ginkgo does is slow the age-related brain rot we all have rather than the pathologic changes of Alzheimer's or other dementias. Maybe if we follow these patients longer, we would see benefit. Maybe made-up indications for an herb really actually work. Maybe there's a tooth fairy. If you have the impression that I am continually annoyed by the lack of strength, consistency, specificity, temporality, dose response, experimental evidence, biologic plausibility, coherence, and analogy before millions are spent evaluating these quack nostrums when I have patients who die, yes, die, from lack of access to affordable health care, well, pardon me for being pissy. So to make their golden years more enjoyable, they took these same elders and gave them a battery of tests that measure brain function. They took these tests every six months for six years. That's how I want to spend my retirement I wonder if they woke up later in a sweat, many years after finishing the study, dreaming they were unprepared for the modified Weschler Adult Intelligence Scale Revised Block Design Test, and not wearing pants. I mean, I'm 52, and I still have college test anxiety dreams. Must be some PTSD, huh?
as it was the same group as before, half were on the ginkgo and half were on placebo. And there was not a whit of difference in the two groups. Quote, we found no evidence for an effect of ginkgo biloba on global cognitive change and no evidence of effect on specific cognitive domains of memory, visual spatial construction, language, attention, psychomotor speed, and executive functions. We found no evidence for differences in treatment effects by age, sex, race, education, or baseline cognitive status. The observation of no significant effect modification by baseline cognitive status suggests that ginkgo biloba affected neither subtle preclinical cognitive changes associated with dementia prodrome nor cognitive changes associated with normal aging, end quote. And unlike the Alzheimer's study, when you look at the data tables, there is no worrisome trend in the difference between the two groups. None. For side effects, they refer the reader to the 2008 study. You know, the one with the higher rate, maybe, of hemorrhagic stroke. So if you were 75 with a normal brain, and you want to keep it normal, or prevent the development of Alzheimer's, ginkgo ain't going to cut it. Save your money. Of course, ginkgo was studied in the elderly, so purveyors of ginkgo have an out. You need to start ginkgo when you are young to ensure a prolonged flow of money to them what sell the drug, or, I mean, to ensure the prevention of brain rot. There are no large studies in the young, and lots of lousy methodologies to suggest benefit. So I will bet there are no diminution in the sales of ginkgo. And the best way to keep your brain sharp is, of course, to listen to skeptical podcasts. So to summarize, chiropractic subluxation, no evidence it exists. Ginkgo does not alter age-related brain rot in the elderly, nor prevent the development of dementia. So that ends the award-winning QuackCast 40. Boy, you're never going to hear the end of that, are you? Don't forget to go on iTunes and write me a glowing review my ravenous ego demands it. Also, don't forget to participate in the rest of my multimedia medical empire. There is science-based medicine where I write twice a month on things all quackery. There is the Gavado Pus, my podcast about infectious diseases. My Puscast, my podcast that reviews infectious diseases. And over at Medscape, Rubor, Dolor, Kalor, Tumor, my blog on infectious diseases because the world needs more Mark Chrislop. And as always, thank you all for listening and see you next time. I wish, by the way, that Ginkgo Biloba would help me forget the duck's loss at the Rose Bowl. <laughs>